Welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and thank you especially to our Thursday show. Love our Thursday shows because they involve one guest. We talk for pretty much a whole hour, and we focus on one topic. And I'm so grateful to say I tell you that we have a wonderful guest joining us, Frank Gaffney. He is the founder of the Washington, D.C. Center for Security Policy. He has a long history of a as a strategy thinker, an advisor, a problem solver in the world of national security, going all the way back to the Ronald Reagan era, where he helped work on the strategy to deal with the threat then communist Russia posed to America. Over the years, his organization has worked very hard addressing a multitude of national security issues and the years of experience he uh, brings to that organization, brings to us, will really be a great help today in diving into our topic, which is a topic at the top of everyone's mind, uh, the issue of the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, just this last week. Before we dive into that, I want to mention one thing uh, on America Can We Talk, and if you're listening on radio, Welcome. Thank you so much for listening on radio. You can find our show online at americacanwetalk.org. At that website, you can find every bit of information you may possibly need uh, about my show. You'll find our blog posts and our past uh, interviews, past shows. So if you're on radio, check out the website, americacanwetalk.org. And also want to mention for this uh, event, before we get to talking uh, with Frank for the whole rest of the hour, I've been talking with you on the show about an event that's coming up in Dallas. It is now this coming Monday. I want to show you the flyer for it. I don't know if you are able to zero in on that, Mr. Ziggy, but if you're not, that's okay. Uh, I want to quickly show you the um, poster, and then there's a QR code in the middle. And when I'm done, tell there's a QR code. If you want to do a screen grab on that QR code, that will take you to information about this event. I can't urge you strong enough to consider going to this event. Uh, and this is an event, uh, back to the, um, if you would, Ziggy, back to the, the um, uh, poster. Uh, what this event is, it was rescheduled because of an ice storm in Dallas. But the event is called, Who Will Defend the Republic? Which is actually a really relevant question here in 2022, uh, especially as we deal with the, the situation in Russia and the Ukraine and many other threats to America's national security. This is an event put on by the Country Girls for Freedom you got to love Texas, Country Girls for Freedom. Uh, and, and the event is this coming Monday, March 7th. It's at uh, 7 p.m. And it is at the uh, really wonderful studios, the Mercury One Studios, Glenbeck Studios. And if you don't have tickets yet, it's, it will be a great event. It will feature Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who is a just fabulous figure to be able to talk about national security, uh, our military, our readiness, and, and as he, he actually wrote a book about defending the Republic. Also a uh, feature will be Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, the very brave former military person uh, who left the military after having written a book telling America essentially that Marxism has taken over America's military. These are two brave American patriots trying to really raise the alarm bell about the condition of America's military, our ability to defend ourselves in the case of um, even foreign conflicts, but certainly what's happening here at home. Uh, and so it'll be a great, great evening. I am moderating it, which I'm, I was very honored to be asked to moderate that. So again, you can, you can go to the, uh, you can send an email. If you don't have tickets, send an email to info, I-N-F-O, info, at countrygirlsforfreedom.com. Info at countrygirlsforfreedom.com, all spelled out. They will arrange for you to get tickets. It'll be at the very, very cool um, studios, uh, Glenbeck Studio, Mercury Studio. It'll be a great evening. Love to have you come. This is probably my, I guess I'll probably talk about this on my show on Monday. But really, get your tickets now. I think it'll be a great evening. Now, turning to the rest of our show. Uh, we're going to talk with Frank Gaffney about the situation uh, in Afghanistan with the Russian invasion. And uh, I'm going to bring him on first. I believe we have him on Skype. We have Frank. I'm here. Can you see me? Hear me? Um, I cannot see me, but I can see your picture. I don't know. I don't. Are we on video? You should. Uh, we cannot see you just yet, Frank. Uh, I don't you think your camera cannot. is feeding us. Well, while we're doing that, camera I have a great thing to do because Frank already knows the things I'm going to tell you. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you there was. I sent uh, Mr. Becker a just one page PowerPoint about the leadership uh, sequence, uh, which really matters in discussing uh, the Ukraine. If you can, you can see it over there. All right. So this was, if you leave that up there for a second, the current leader, uh, the one we're dealing with right now is Zelensky, May 2019 till now. Prior to that, there was Proshenko, who was June 2014 to 2019. Uh, he was kind of installed, I would say. Uh, prior to that, we have the, the individual at the top, Viktor um, Yanukovych, and he was there from February 
2010 to February 2014, friendly toward Russia and removed uh, during a Ukrainian revolution, or many people would say an Obama-Biden influence revolution uh, in the Ukraine, which really I want to do today beyond just talking about the specifics of where we are. I want to talk about how we got here, what really is involved in the um, geopolitical strain between Russia and the Ukraine. So that's the history of the Ukraine. One other quick thing while we're getting Frank set up on the, uh, so our Skype can rock and roll, um, I want to also show you a map of the Ukraine. And I want to start, Mr. Beck, with the first map I sent you. Okay, the reason I wanted to do this is, I think in America, and I'm not faulting anybody because I'd be just the same, you, you kind of think these countries are, they're, they're somewhere over there. I'm not really sure where they are. But I want to point out to you that at the map you're looking at, the Ukraine is bordered, obviously, by Russia. You can see Russia's in the bright yellow, and Ukraine is just below that kind of the more mustardy yellow color. But look how close Ukraine is to Western Europe. I mean, it's, they're like, they're, they're touching. And the reason I think that's important to understand is why Vladimir Putin in Russia would view the Ukraine becoming part of NATO, which was one of the discussions they were having, as a potential threat. I'll plant this seed now, and Mr. Gaffney can tell me I'm completely out of line, but I will make the analogy. It is how we Americans would be alarmed if we discovered the communist Chinese were putting in a military installation in Cuba, but told us not to worry about it. We would worry about it. We would think of something. So I want to be sure and share that with you because of the, ge the geography is important. And the next map I sent, uh, Mr. Becker, one more map, right? Uh, it's a uh, kind of digging in more. You can see the, the map of Ukraine, how very, very long the line is, the border with Russia. They're touching each other very much. And then the last one is just Crimea. Last little happy map, if we have that. Green one. If we don't, anyway. Yeah, there you go. That is that little map of the little island at the bottom of the peninsula, which is what we are, uh, which has become a, a source of battles too. So let's go back now and see if we have Mr. Frank Gaffney ready to roll. I'm here. Can you hear me? There you something? are. Okay. Hi. Terrific. Hi. <laughs> Debbie, sorry about the challenges here. No problem. It's great to see you. Always great to see you. And I'm so grateful. You're just honestly one of the experts in the country whom I trust to give a pro-America well-informed assessment of where we are in this country uh, and where we are with foreign policy, where we are dealing with uh, Russia and the Ukraine. So I'm going to start with something. Do you, I, I said something, I don't know if you're able to hear my remarks a minute ago. Yes. Okay. It, do you agree that Vladimir Putin would view the idea that Ukraine is fl flirting with the idea of trying to be admitted to NATO? Is Vladimir Putin justified in considering that a threat? I don't think so, Debbie. Um, I, I think he does consider it a threat. Um, is he justified in considering it a threat? Um, my own feeling is not so much. Um, and that is because there's no evidence that anyone in NATO, um, most especially those aspiring to be in it, basically to be protected from the sorts of things that are being inflicted by Vladimir Putin right this minute, uh, including, of course, Ukraine. Uh, want to attack or otherwise threaten Russia. What Putin is bringing on himself is a very harsh retaliation, but it is precipitated by his unprovoked attack against Ukraine. So my view of this is a little different. I think that Putin has had in mind throughout his time as the dictator, essentially, of the Kremlin, the reconstitution of at least the Russian Empire, if not um, the Soviet one. And this is about that <clears throat> because you can't get there from here without reconstituting uh, at a minimum the relationship between Russia and Ukraine uh, that is very much a, a vassal state at best and at worst uh, conquered and occupied territory. Okay, there's also the element of this um, about the uh, people in the Ukraine who are, live in some areas in the Ukraine, relatively low, uh, close to Russia, that they may have a sense that their ethnicity, their nationality is more Russian. And so is, and I think that's part of what the Putin defenders are saying is, well, you know, he really, I mean, these people kind of want, at least some of them in the, in the border areas, they, they really feel more Russian than Ukrainian. Is that valid, do you think? I think it was in the past. Uh, I think that the Russian 
involvement in the so-called Donbass region in eastern Ukraine um, has taken the bloom off that rose for an awful lot of people who are Ukrainian but you know have a Russian um, background or language skills or ethnicity, I guess you might say. The reality is that this has been a pretty horrific eight years, I guess now, since uh, Putin began his conquest of uh, Ukraine with Crimea and, and uh, you know, the efforts to destabilize and ultimately see if he can't break off uh, the two provinces that make up the Donbass region. So I, I think that the people living there have had a lot of hard experience watching how this works. And many of them, I think, have become much more inclined to remain in Ukraine and to get into a relationship with the West than to be once again joined with Mother Russia. Um, but whatever the, the numbers are and, and the sentiments, I think the larger point is this, that there were internationally recognized borders and Vladimir Putin has for years been determined to rewrite them. And I don't think that's because of NATO. I don't think that's because of, um, you know, Ukraine's interest in being with the uh, the European Union, which has now been formally requested. I think it's about Putin's ambitions and his belief at the present moment in particular, Debbie, that he can get away with using force to accomplish his longstanding objective of um, reunifying Russia with Ukraine, um, essentially cost-free. That has proven not to be the case. I have to say, I think mostly because of popular opinion in Europe, which has prompted European leaders to uh, respond fairly robustly. I'm frankly surprised, I have to say, but um, not so much uh, the Biden administration. Okay, you know, I, think, I am so glad we're having this conversation because I knew you'd have a wealth of uh, historical knowledge but all uh, to, to bear in this situation. Um, this part of the... Uh, Another defense being proffered, let me just go out this way, another defense being proffered about Putin's conduct is the alleged uh, presence in the Ukraine of bioweapons labs. And that, you know, we had, obviously we had the bioweapon huge problem out of Wuhan. We had the apparent confirmation that at least uh, Dr. Fauci knew about, uh, so America knew about and partially funded that Wuhan lab. So there was concern that what was being done there, many, many concerns about what was occurring there. Now there's concern that there were bioweapons labs in the Ukraine. That's another defense Putin is, or his, his uh, defenders are offering is, well, he had to take those out. What are your th what's your thought on that? Well, look, there could be bioweapons laboratories in Ukraine. I have no basis to say there are. I will tell you an experience I had uh, many, many years ago when I worked for President Reagan in the Defense Department. I had an office with a small closet in it. And uh, at one point, a defense intelligence agency expert on bio warfare uh, visited me, briefed me in my office, and he pointed to that closet, very small, and he said, you could have a biological warfare production facility inside that closet. And nobody walking down the hall would know it is there. So the point is that you can create bioweapons in places without anybody's knowledge. Uh, are there such things in Ukraine? I, I can't say there aren't. Honestly, it would be rich to have the Russians complaining about that, even if that's true, given that they have an illegal biological weapons program of their own. And I emphasize illegal, uh, just as is that of China, which is also, of course, much of the news because it appears it was responsible for unleashing on us this, uh, well, I call it the Chinese Communist Party virus. None of these are legal under the uh, convention banning biological warfare and uh, the uh, wherewithal needed to conduct it. Um, to which all of these nations are party, I believe, including Ukraine. Actually, that was my next point to go to. And, and if you can elaborate at all, I would have guessed without you having said it, that Russia, of all the countries besides China, of all countries, is likely to involved in the developing development of bioweapons, uh, whether they're permitted to or not by any treaty. They are always on the offense, and certainly in something like that. So it does make the argument that 
Putin thinks we're under threat, kind of, we're, you know, we're allowed to threaten the world what we do here, but you can't be threatening us over the next border into Ukraine. Any further thoughts on that? Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, Debbie, I mean, let's go back again to a little bit of history. In 1994, shortly after the Soviet Union came apart, thanks God, and in no small measure, thanks to Ronald Reagan and uh, his strategy for taking down the Soviet Union, which, let me just point out, Vladimir Putin insists was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. And when you think about the other contenders for that dubious distinction, World War I, the Holocaust, World War II, for example, it, it says a lot about where he's coming from that he thinks the downfall of the USSR, engineered to be sure by Ronald Reagan, by the United States, and to varying degrees, uh, with the active support of others in the West, notably um, Britain under Margaret Thatcher. What you see there is, I think, the uh, animating force for a lot of what's going on here, uh, not only towards Ukraine, but also towards NATO, uh, a desire on Putin's part to get even. But back to 1994, when the United States and Great Britain and Russia, perhaps one or two other countries, came together, as I recall it was in Budapest, or Bucharest, one of those places in Eastern Europe, they came together to promise that they would protect Ukraine from invasion if only it would surrender the 200 or so nuclear weapons that it had inherited from the Soviet Union because they had been deployed there uh, when uh, the USSR did exist. We made that solemn commitment. And whether Putin wants us to believe that there's biological weapons there or whether they, they, he claims also that they have a nuclear weapons program or whether he says he's entitled to it because he doesn't want Ukraine to become part of NATO or the European Union or anything else. That solemn commitment, I believe, still persists. And, and it should be binding on Russia, too, by the way. And of course, that's not his view at all. Many people have been commenting. Let me just add, Debbie, oh, if, if, if Ukraine did have those nuclear weapons still, I don't think there's any chance what's going on at the moment would be happening. So to the extent that we essentially engineered the vulnerability that is now being exploited by Putin, um, I, I think that does create certain moral responsibilities for us, as well as others in the free world, to try to help the Ukrainians resist this uh, onslaught. Well, this gets us to the heart of the question, the thing that's concerning so many Americans. You know, we have uh, maybe after World War II, people use the expression, we are war weary, and we didn't want to, you know, and after World War I, we were war weary. And so at this point, we have American troops, you know, Donald Trump is big about bringing them home, and we don't have to be involved in all these skirmishes around the world. But we do see Russia being aggressive here. Um, and America has traditionally kind of, as we stood up against Hitler, uh, you know, maybe you see the argument that we've got to get involved. But you also see a war weary America saying, uh-uh, we don't even, this administration especially, doesn't even defend our own southern border. Why, why should we send troops over to defend Ukraine's border with Russia? So what's your reaction to that argument? Well, nothing I've said, nor anything do I believe, suggests that we should be sending troops to defend the border, which has now been overrun, um, making anything like that much more challenging, obviously. Um, in Ukraine itself, we, we have troops in Europe, uh, in NATO, nations that border on Ukraine and border, uh, for that matter, uh, on Russia itself. Um, some of which, by the way, are being threatened by Putin as well as Ukraine. Uh, others that, that are not part of NATO, like Finland and Sweden, are being now threatened by Putin as well. So uh, my point is basically this. I think we have every incentive to revert to the policy that Ronald Reagan 
embraced. He famously called it peace through strength. It's the only national security policy, I believe, that has stood the test of time. It works. It doesn't mean that you go fight wars unnecessarily. It means that you are strong enough that people don't want to go to war with you. The trouble is that unfortunately, particularly under this administration, we are perceived as not being either strong or even resolute enough to uh, threaten credibly the strength that we do have. And that is in part, I believe, why we're in the fix we are today. Uh, Debbie, I just learned yesterday that um, uh, a woman by the name of Victoria Newland, who served in the Obama administration, I believe is the Assistant Secretary for Europe uh, in the State Department, uh, among other positions, but uh, today is the Under Secretary of State, um, third ranking person, I think, in the State Department uh, responsible for policy. I believe she went to the Kremlin in October of last year, and um, I gather made uh, remarks that were somewhat akin to um, another notorious diplomat uh, by the name of April Glaspie. You may remember her as the then U.S. ambassador to Iraq uh, on the eve of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And she went in with the instruction to basically say to him, uh, the United States has no interest in essentially the uh, disputes between Iraq and Kuwait, which Saddam Hussein read as a green light to go ahead and resolve those disputes to his liking by sending in an occupying army. Um, we wound up having an interest after all, <laughs> of course. We wound up um, going into uh, Kuwait to throw him out. I, I think a similar kind of um, signaling may have taken place with Victoria Newland that, you know, uh, well, as Joe Biden said publicly, uh, a minor incursion wouldn't be a problem necessarily. But whatever the message was, I think it reinforced Vladimir Putin's perception that uh, he could, in fact, act against Ukraine uh, to sort things to his liking. Um, decapitate the existing elected government, put in a puppet government, have it very clearly align with Russia, if not um, formally become annexed by it again, and certainly very subservient to it. And, and remember, Debbie, this is a key piece. And I think most of us um, living in a nation that has been blessed for decades, really, uh, by incredible security, particularly here at home with the odd terrorist you know, exception, um, actually having, I think, the opportunity to do something uh, that all of us should be doing all of the time, namely that we have an awareness of vulnerability. Um, it's a survival instinct. I apologize for the ringing. I can't do anything about that, but somebody's ringing me. Um, the point is that when you are like Vladimir Putin, a thug, uh, when you are in harm's way, like the people of Ukraine, when you are living as most people around the world do, not sure whether you will survive the day because of um, external forces or possible enemies, you have a very highly attuned sense of threats to your survival. You have to. And I think Putin's calculation when he talked to Victoria Newland and and he's talked to Joe Biden and he's watched Afghanistan and he's otherwise been monitoring closely what we've been doing and saying and are capable of doing. I think he calculated that he could do whatever he wanted vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and here we are. I do want to explore that point further in just a few minutes about why Putin felt now justified now, uh, given our current leadership in America versus the previous four years. But back to your point about Victoria Newland and back in the Obama era in 2013-2014, Obama, whose vice president was indeed Joe Biden, uh, during that time, 2013-14, the Obama, Obama administration is alleged to have participated, agitated, in some way really driven the uh, overthrow, the coup, or they, they try to give it a happy name, the um, the Maiden Revolution, the uh, Orange Revolution, whatever they want to call it, 
within the Ukraine trying to remove and, and did result in removing uh, this Yukonovich, who was a, a leader of Ukraine viewed to be friendly to Russia and Obama's uh, you know, behind the scenes orchestration of this coup ended up in his being remove, removed and then putting someone in viewed to be more pro-American, uh, Poroshenko. So in the, this history makes the people of Russia or could make <coughs> Putin think, yeah, America works against our interests. We had a nice friendly leader over here in the Ukraine and Obama took him out. And so that and, and the people involved in that, uh, in fact, some of these names, because you mentioned her, <coughs> Tori Newland, the, the Obama foreign policy team, this a foreign policy team, Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland, Susan Rice, and others are now back. They were in the Obama White House, and now they're back in the Biden White House. It just seems like that could be um, a justification for um, Putin feeling, well, yeah, I don't want this America-friendly uh, attitude. I, I'm going to show them I'm putting in my guy. You think, I'm not justifying his actions by that, but do you think that plays into his thinking, Putin's? Uh, look, I don't know to what extent that's true, um, but to the extent he perceives it to be true, yes, I think it could factor into his thinking that, again, he wants Ukraine attached to Russia, uh, either literally and formally as a part of Russia or as a vassal state, as I said. Anything that interferes with that is not to his liking. Um, I think the underlying point that your question really raises is, what did the people of Ukraine want? And I think overwhelmingly, they wanted somebody who was not aligned with the Kremlin, who was aligned with the West, might enable them to be more integrated in with the West, and certainly was espousing freedom and not the kind of, um, well, inexorable increasing tyranny that we've seen from Putin and uh, and his various minions in other parts of the so-called near abroad. So I, I think whatever the Obama team did, uh, I, I suspect that they were actively trying to promote color revolution there. They certainly did, as we know, with very dismal effects in the Middle East, the so-called Arab Spring. Uh, and uh, most especially, we, we've uh, recalled uh, their gloating about uh, taking out Muammar Gaddafi, a guy who was actually a friend of uh, the United States in his odd fashion at the time, certainly. Uh, this is the sort of thing that I, I <clears throat> wouldn't suggest they were um, uninvolved, let me put it that way. But I do think that what was ultimately determinative of what happened in Ukraine was the uh, will of the people there, um, not somebody that we were imposing upon them from outside. I'm hearing that. I love any notion that the Ukrainian people would rather be affiliated with the West, with freedom, uh, assuming, and that actually may explain why at this point it appears uh, that the Ukrainian government is trying to get itself allied and become a member of the European Union. They, it's more of a Western power. It's, it's again, a pushback against um, against Putin and, and Russian control. I do want to, you know, we're, I need to say a quick thing for our radio listeners. If you're listening on radio, we're going off to a break. It's a three-minute break. The show will roll on while you're on your break. However, do come back. We have another whole half an hour after you come back, so don't go away if you're listening on radio. And if you're listening on radio and you want to find the show online, it is at americacanwetalk.org. Come right back to americacanwetalk.org. You can read at our website everything we do, see the past shows, and in the meantime, we're going to rock and roll on this interview uh, online, which is us, what most of us, most of us are doing, how we're watching. So, um, Mr. Gaffney, I do want to ask you, um, do, do you have a sense, I mean, I, I will tell you that many people are saying, and it strikes me as accurate, that President Trump <clears throat> conveyed strength in America. He conveyed a strong country. And I, I would get, I would, my sense is his presence, his representation of America as a strong country, still standing up for freedom, probably caused Putin to hold back from Ukrainian invasion. I mean, I agree with you, he has long-term, he, you know, he said that famous statement about the biggest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, right. catastrophe, uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And when many people thought of it was like the best event uh, of the 20th century. But in any case, back to this. So do you think that Trump's presence in the White House did cause Putin 
to think twice, to hold back, and he feels he, Putin, now has a sense of America. You know, we got to, we don't have, I don't sense strength of America anymore. We have an administration that is, isn't as strong and pro-America, and so now's my time. Do you think that's fair? I think that's generally correct. Uh, look, Donald Trump, I think, had a very different vision of uh, how he would like the United States to relate to Russia. It wasn't just that he was strong, but I think he felt that uh, an alignment between the United States and Russia against our real mortal enemy, and, and by the way, inevitably, the enemy of Russia as well, namely communist China, uh, would be a good thing. So he went to, to some lengths, uh, widely ridiculed for doing it, and usually uh, alleged to be Putin's puppet or, you know, uh, in some other way compromised by Putin. I don't think that was the case at all. And it certainly proved not to be, uh, despite um, the best efforts of special prosecutors and impeachment inquiries and so on to prove otherwise, that he actually had anything other than a sort of strategic vision. Uh, he's also, I think, made plain, including very recently, uh, that he has a certain uh, respect for Putin's strength and cunning. Uh, it doesn't mean you agree with what he's doing, but it does mean that uh, when a guy like Putin, who has a relatively weak hand, let's face it, I mean, he's strong relative to Ukraine for sure. He's got an immense nuclear arsenal, which he's just modernized, and, and we might talk a little bit more about that in a moment, because that's a very serious issue at the, at the juncture we're at at this time. But Debbie, what I think Donald Trump conveyed was that you don't want to mess with me. And whether we can actually have some better relationship or not, you really don't want it to be a bad relationship. And I think some of the things he did to Russia, uh, including sanctions and the like, um, made that pretty obvious. Um, but what you have now, alas, is a man who Vladimir Putin has taken the measure of for decades, namely Joe Biden. And frankly, in a way that has been, well, to put it charitably, undiplomatic, he has conveyed in the past his utter contempt for Joe Biden when he was vice president, notably. And so he certainly does not regard him as a figure that he has to be dealing with in a similar way as he had to deal with a genuinely strong, somewhat unpredictable character like Donald Trump. To the contrary, he now believes, perhaps because he's compromised Joe Biden, as have a lot of bad guys, uh, including particularly the Chinese Communist Party, of course, or perhaps simply because he knows that at the end of the day, he doesn't have the intestinal fortitude or the vision or the intelligence, let alone the will to actually stand up to someone as strong, especially as skilled at playing a relatively weak hand as Vladimir Putin is. Yep, a bunch of directions to go. I, I can't believe how fast these interviews always go with you. We still have about 25 minutes, but um, I wanna go back to one thing you mentioned a moment ago. Um, and this is when you were in the uh, Reagan administration, part of what you, and I always, I've introduced you at many events and I always make this point because I think it's just really relevant to dealing with many challenges America faces, which is, it's one thing to say we have a strong military and we're going to send them in and, and if our guys come in, you know, and we're committed, we, we can you know, be, be tough military. But you worked with the, the whole concept of the Cold War of fighting communism and its expansion by tactics other than uh, dropping bombs. And you addressed, you know, uh, the Reagan administration looked far and wide for vehicles other than um, flat out war to win the Cold War. So what kinds of things that we did then against Russia can we do now against Russia again to punish them with respect to how what they've done in the Ukraine? Well, Debbie, thank you for calling up those uh, fond memories of the past. Um, I, I did have just an unbelievable privilege as a very young man uh, serving President Reagan 
uh, both with responsibility for nuclear weapons policy in the height of the Cold War uh, in the Defense Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, and then acting as an Assistant Secretary with the larger portfolio of U.S.-European and U.S.-Soviet relations uh, at DOD. And it was an incredible ringside seat, um, helping uh, a bit, but mostly uh, being present for uh, the sort of implementation of his strategy. And as you say, it was a multifaceted strategy. It did not involve the use of military force directly against Russia, thank God. Um, it did involve um, challenging the Russians, however, uh, the Soviets at the time, um, by, again, reestablishing the posture of strength that had been allowed to attrit terribly during the Vietnam years and then in the period of detente that followed it under Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford and before that Richard Nixon. So all of these things um, were um, bolstered, his strategy, um, most especially by one of economic warfare against the Soviets. Um, colleague of mine who I think you know, uh, Roger Robinson has um, accomplished a lot of things in his life, but one of the most important was that he helped Ronald Reagan articulate a strategy for essentially cutting off the cash flow to Russia. We're doing some of that now. Um, again, I have to say, largely, if not entirely, at the instigation of our European allies, who, to my astonishment, once again, um, have, I believe, principally in response to the terrible humanitarian crisis, which is clearly moving their populations to insist on action against Russia. Um, the action that has been taken to date is primarily in the financial and economic arena, um, cutting them off from the so-called SWIFT system, which interferes with their banking, freezing assets, seizing assets, um, and otherwise, uh, you know, contributing to a devaluation of their currency and uh, the loss of sales of uh, everything pretty much, I think, except energy. And that's the one place where the Russians, I'm sure, are calculating they retain a whole card vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Europeans. And interestingly enough, energy was one of the things that was very directly targeted by Reagan and his team uh, in the uh, Cold War period. Um, we wound up working with the Saudis to greatly decrease the cost of energy by greatly increasing the supply of oil on the market, oil and gas. And um, that had a crippling effect on the Soviet Union and its ability to maintain its uh, evil empire, as Reagan famously called it. And we need to, I think, emulate that now by restoring our own energy security uh, to what we had under uh, Donald Trump and, uh, and extend it to a greater degree even than he did to our European allies. And, and partly that means enabling you know, folks in your neck of the woods, the, uh, the oil patch, to get back to work, encouraging them, incentivizing them to do that, producing at the max, not depleting our oil reserves, our stocks of, uh, you know, what I think are genuinely supposed to be there for emergencies uh, of oil, but rather tapping what's in the ground and getting it as fast as we can to places in Europe, also to help and encourage and facilitate our Israeli friends who had a pipeline that Joe Biden opposed, like he did the Keystone XL pipeline, um, that would also help um, diversify Europe's uh, dependence and uh, uh, give it alternatives to dependence, I should say, on, on Russia for, for gas. These are the sorts of things that um, we should never have allowed to, um, uh, you know, get us into this kind of position, but uh, we certainly ought to take steps to correct it right now, learning the lesson from Ronald Reagan in the Cold War. Love that. Uh, I have a bunch of other quick questions. I'll remind you as we get closer to the end that we do have people in the audience able to ask questions, uh, but I'm not quite to that point yet. But I do want to ask you a couple of quick things. One is, there's been concern expressed that if Russia is really is driven out of the SWIFT banking systems that Russia and China 
could ally because they they could decide, you know, okay, we can't be part of yours, and that may ultimately weaken the American dollar. Are you concerned about that? I am, uh, and I think other thoughtful people are too. I've got friends who say there's really no alternative, but um, the Russians are certainly in bed with the Chinese and putting together something called the SIPS system, uh, which is designed to be an alternative to SWIFT. And uh, the Chinese, I think, have every incentive to want to see that become uh, widely utilized. Um, and there are other nations around the world that are increasingly anxious about the dollar, given what we've been doing to inflate it. And interestingly, Debbie, uh, interestingly, Debbie uh, what it means that we are um, less and less seen as the dominant military power in the world, which is um, often correlated with uh, the perception that our currency shouldn't be considered the reserve currency either. Uh, those things are in the mix, uh, whether there's an alternative, uh, not just to SWIFT, but uh, to the dollar as a reserve currency, I don't know, but it's a very ominous thing that Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve earlier this week, declared that there could be multiple reserve currencies. Uh, I think that's a very slippery slope towards um, de-dollarization, which the Russians and the Chinese, I think, are all about. Uh, agreeing all fronts, I find it so alarming. And actually, it does all tie back to the mentality of the Biden administration, the current administration, and what they want for America. Do they love being uh, America as a single super military power? No, they actually don't. They're demeaning it. Do they love America to be the leader of the free world, the standard bearer? Not really. Do they love America, the dollar standard, and do things to restore its strength? And they don't. I mean, everything that we're watching is weakening America in every direction, which kind of plays into what Putin sees when he looks looks across the ocean, uh, looks over to America. I want to ask you very quickly, there was commentary, a whole string of text messages or tweets from George Soros, which I did not manage to grab, but he is cheering the world on to stand up for Ukraine. And honestly, I always feel like almost everything he says is the opposite of what we should want. But I mean, do you have any idea why he would be cheering that on? Well, if I could just respond to your last point, um, you kept phrasing this, uh, if they love America, X. I don't think they love America. It pains me to say Wait, that. I'm on a way in. It, You're exactly right. It, it, it's really the underlying problem. And I think what uh, is the best way to characterize what they're doing in all of these areas and domestic areas as well is it's a wrecking operation because they want to change America. They want it to be something different, fundamentally transform it, as Barack Obama said. And I think along Marxist lines, honestly, um, the Great Reset um, may have a sort of coloration to it, but it's not the America that we know and love and, and need. Um, Debbie, George Soros um, is a very dangerous man, in my judgment. I had an interesting interview earlier today for our radio program, uh, we're calling now Securing America. Um, in which I talked with the former president and prime minister of Albania. And uh, he has been warning about George Soros and what he's been doing in his own country. He said initially it started out helpful. He, he did assist them in getting a civil society built out of the ashes of the old communist Albania. Um, but then he decided he was going to, or he executed at least his plan to try to turn it to um, a system of his liking. I think that his interest in Ukraine at the moment is probably similarly to be helpful perhaps in the short term, but uh, almost certainly to be quite insidious and unhelpful over the longer term. The fact that this guy is still operating as he is in so many countries around the world, and usually in such a malevolent way, is a scandal. And I, I don't understand why we're not doing more to stop him. Couldn't agree more. Um, I'm going to touch on one thing, back to NATO, which was 45 minutes ago in this interview. But back to NATO, there's a gentleman who's currently the CIA director, Bill Burns. And he was the one who uh, was around and he actually wrote two different memos. I, I have, I'm sorry, I have all these papers here. Uh, he wrote two different memos. Um, one, he wrote a memoir called The Back Channel. He warned in Moscow in 1995, and then he wrote again later a memo in 2008, uh, a memo to then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice saying that Putin essentially said, the, the red line for me, which you may not cross, is if Ukraine joins the NATO, 
joins <laughs> NATO, you know, um, that, that's the red line we can't have, we'll go in. And I'm raising it to say, um, number one, uh, you know, Putin doesn't get to decide who joins NATO. And he doesn't get to make those kind, he doesn't have a moral authority to state that. But he had made that clear, this what he thought. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, then there was conversation about Biden's team, Blinken, I think, and, and Biden having conveyed, if you want to, you know, to Ukraine, you know, if you want to join NATO, let us know. Is that like prodding the giant or something? I mean, it just seemed like they knew that would really provoke him. So I'm wondering if, if Biden, in any degree, was trying, in your assessment, to provoke Putin by saying, hinting to Ukraine, yeah, you want to join the NATO, be okay. You know, I, I don't know what to make of all of that, uh, Debbie. I, I think that uh, Putin clearly has not wanted uh, Ukraine to join NATO and has doubtless expressed that publicly and privately over many years. Um, again, NATO didn't want Ukraine in to this point. Ukraine did not apply to become part of NATO to this point. Uh, this now, as you say, asked to join the European Union, which is not the same thing. There's obviously a lot of overlap, but not the same thing. As to, you know, what Joe Biden has done, look, just conjure up that closing, you know, uh, let's go get them uh, comment uh, Biden made at the end of his, uh, well, I don't call it the State of the Union, I call it the, uh, the, uh, what is it called now? Um, gaslighting of the union. That's yeah. what basically yeah. during that speech. But it's his closing comment um, just is the kind of enthusiast that he is. And I could see him saying just sort of off the cuff, hey, you know, if you want to join NATO, uh, let me know. Without giving it any thought or, or necessarily it actually being part of American policy at the moment. Uh, this is the sort of thing that does give rise, though, to knock-on effects with, um, you know, perhaps very dangerous consequences. And you can bet that that was reported to Putin and might well have factored into all of this. But again, then you have the countervailing signaling that um, at least is now being reported about Victoria Newland saying, hey, you know, whatever you want to do there is fine with us. Uh, or words to that effect. So again, I don't know what to make of this other than to say we are in very dangerous hands at the moment for all of the reasons we've just discussed. And uh, I think that is contributing to our adversaries' belief that they can have their way with us, which is why it's so dangerous. That's what actually I was going to mention. You send out a great email or a secure Secure Freedom Minute. I'm sorry, I'm not losing. Is that the right name of it? Yeah. And, and one point you were making was when you have a weak administration, and I agree with your point five minutes ago about this isn't just a weak administration. This is a wrecking ball operation. I'll confess I've stolen that phrase from you and used it on my show. It's such a good, good description of That's the Biden administration. Wrecking ball effort toward America on almost every level. But it's not just someone like Putin who perceives that about America, who sees America as floundering, has, uh, you know, isn't even defending their borders, or our military's a mess, our economy's a mess. You see uh, that danger that prompted Putin to think, wow, that might be a good time now. But there are a whole series of leaders of thug nations who could be thinking the same thing right now. When America's weak, my time to pounce. Talk a little bit about, if you would please, who might, who might see him that way? What other world leaders should we be worried about who may act because Biden appears so weak? Well, it's easier to identify world leaders who don't see that, uh, Debbie, than it is world leaders who do. I, I suspect that uh, of the two camps, both all of our enemies, and we have quite a number of them out there. Um, in addition to Russia, we've touched on China a bit. Uh, that's the biggest and most dangerous of the bunch. But there's our Iran, of course, uh, there's North Korea. Uh, one might throw into the mix uh, Pakistan, um, the Taliban. Uh, you have assorted uh, adversaries in various uh, communist uh, dictatorships in our own hemisphere that are increasingly numerous. Um, and, and my biggest concern really is that uh, there's enough of this going on to say nothing of what the Chinese have been putting into place in terms of 
a global colonial infrastructure that could be used by them to essentially globalize any conflict um, by taking advantage of the airfields or the ports or the rail networks and so on in strategic locations in some 140 countries, maybe not all of them, but some of them that would further uh, intensify the danger that uh, we would face should you know, the balloon go up, as they say. And I think the balloon is up for sure in Ukraine, of course, but it may well be going up very shortly in Taiwan and perhaps elsewhere in the places I've mentioned. Uh, Israel and Iran are almost certainly going to go at it here very shortly and possibly with nuclear weapons. Uh, so, Debbie, just last point. I, I think what we're talking about is, in addition, allies who are taking note of all of this. And, and probably it's occurring to not a few of them that they might best be um, pursuing separate pieces with some of these adversaries who might otherwise pose very mortal dangers to them as well. Uh, it is so troubling to think when America, I mean, the world needs America as Trump had it, strong, solid, free, and, and a signaling to the world, allies and adversaries, you know, what we stand for. Okay, we have a microphone. I'm not sure. There, okay, so there's a microphone being spread to the audience, and we have a few folks who may have questions. I, I haven't seen any hands, but... Uh, we love okay so we have a question right there in the end and remember speak right to the microphone please is it on yes. um this question might feel kind of contrary to what the line of thinking but since what debbie said about what george soros said it makes me wonder even more what is your reaction to the idea that the corruption in ukraine especially as it pertains to joe and hunter biden that all that is actually threatened by Putin taking over, or Russia taking over Ukraine. Um, do you see what I mean? Because even, I I, that's different than the Ukrainian people. I'm talking about the Ukrainian corrupt government. Yeah. Look, um, corruption is an endemic condition in most of the world. Um, I, I'm afraid uh, what you've just said points out that it's, happened here too. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable, but we have serving in the White House, a man who has been deeply corrupted, not just by Ukrainian oligarchs, uh, but by the mayor of Russia's uh, largest capital city, um, Moscow, and uh, not least a, a whole host of uh, Chinese communist entities, including intelligence service connected ones, uh, as Peter Schweitzer has pointed out in his book, Red Handed. So be careful about casting that for a stone, I think. But more to the point, I believe that what Joe Biden is doing um, bespeaks uh, not a desire to protect his uh, corrupt ties to Ukraine, um, but rather to sell out uh, Ukraine to the Russians, um, who he's also been corrupted by. And, and most especially, as you probably noticed or have heard since, um, the fact that he didn't mention China once in his so-called State of the Union address uh, certainly seems to be part of an effort to lowball uh, the reality that we face. Uh, well, I think of it as the Borg. If uh, you remember that uh, villainous entity from Star Trek, it's a very dangerous adversary. And to, to go through an hour of State of the Union without talking about the fact that it has waged unrestricted warfare against us for, well, probably two decades at least, um, is, well, not just an oversight or, or uh, an error in competence. That's malfeasance. And I think it, again, bespeaks his own personal corruption. Could, if it happens that it's taken over by Russia, could it end up being advantageous in that it would expose the Bidens more or no? Well, interestingly, there was a release uh, last week, and I, I haven't seen it get any play at all, but uh, the Ukrainian government, um, which I think is actually trying to root out corruption, not you know the prime perpetrators of it, um, released a whole trove of evidence about Joe Biden's corruption. I guess they were doing it uh, to sort of settle scores with how he's behaved towards them. But look, just to be clear, there is no more corrupt enterprise 
in the world than a communist one. So we're not going to see things cleaned up when it comes to corruption or improved in terms of ethical governance um, by a Russian takeover of Ukraine any more than, you know, a Chinese takeover of Taiwan or, you know, any place else. This is this is endemic, as I say, in most places around the world, and the communists are among the prime practitioners of it. Any other questions? Others questions? Hands? Okay, there we go. Um, thank you for all this information. Has anyone considered bringing RICO charges against Soros? I mean, wouldn't that not apply to this man? Has anyone talked about it? Any administration? Anyone? It's a great question, and I'm not an attorney. Debbie is, and she might have a better answer for you than I do. I, I'm in favor of it, whatever it takes. Okay. Other questions? I don't Questions or thoughts? I do want to give you, Frank, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners. I know that I always say, when I've introduced you, go to securefreedom.org. You do so many things now. You, you, were, you founded the Center for Security Policy. You're still serving as the, um, whatever your title is there. You're, you're Executive so, Chairman. Hmm, sorry? Executive Chairman. Executive Chairman. But really, and you have a wonderful new uh, interim uh, head who's doing a great job. But you've also been active. You have a radio, you have television, just please tell our listeners all the ways they can find you and follow you, because you do tremendous service bringing all that you know about national security to the American public. So tell us, all of us, how you do that, how people find you. Well, thank you, Debbie. You have been so generous over all these years uh, in encouraging me to do that. Um, I'm so, sorry that the background just uh, got to put another corporate machine, I guess. <laughs> but securingamerica.tv um, is a one-stop shop for our television and radio and commentary. Um, we also have a website, securefreedom.org, for the Center for Security Policy. And a project that I'm particularly proud of um, has its own site. Uh, it is the Committee on the Present Danger China, of which I am the vice chairman. And that uh, site is presentdangerchina.org. And basically what all of these things are intended to do, Debbie, is uh, really what we've just been discussing, um, promoting the practice of peace through strength to avoid unnecessary conflicts and to assure the security um, of our country and our constitutional republic against, as I swore in an oath many times in the past, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And sadly, as you're describing the way you and I both see this current administration, you get very, very concerned about what their ultimate goal is because of the policies they put in place. What they, you, you know, I, the one I say is always the simplest is there is no good explanation for abandoning the southern border. There, there's no, uh, well, it's a really great policy because it's going to do this. I mean, people who go down to the border, try to report, try to take videos, try to show what's happening. And they just meet a deaf ear out of this administration and out of left-wing media who just don't really cover it. So, yeah, we're, it's a, it is indeed a dangerous time in America to have a leader who, um, and, you know, or he who occupies the White House, uh, who doesn't appear to have the interests of the American people on many, many levels um, at, at the center of what he's doing. So, Frank Gaffney, I know you are always in demand. I want to thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Debbie, and, and thanks for what you do to fill that void that you talked about. It's yawning and it needs your active support, that of your audience. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, sir. And thank you for clapping. I love our audience does that. I really do. Thank you so very much. Well, folks, I will tell you that um, our uh, this show every Thursday now is one guest, and we spend an hour with them. Next week, we have Rebecca Friedrichs joining us. And she is a uh, she was a teacher in California. She was a plaintiff in a case went all the way to the Supreme Court to challenge the obligation of teachers to um, uh, pay dues into the unions who then use the money to support political causes they don't like. She's become an advocate for public school teachers and public school students. Uh, she has a new film coming out is be out in theaters a week from. Monday, a week from Monday, uh, in which she's trying to challenge what's occurring in the public schools and urging parents to get involved. Her film is called uh, Whose Kids Are They? Very good question, because the school board thinks the kids are their kids, but whose kids are they? She's a wonderful advocate for 
quality public education and the right of parents to be involved in public schools. So that is next week. In closing, I'll tell you again, thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. <laughs>